This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Cessna pushes forward on diesel. And Navworks has an update on their ADSB situation. Garmin doubles down on the non-TSO world. And good news, bad news on the legislative front. Finally, stick around for our guest this week. It's funny man and flight instructor extraordinaire, Rod Machado. Wow, that sounds like a great <laughs> guest, Ian. <laughs> All right, Dave, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, people got to stick around because we're talking to Rod. Um, lots of people have seen him. He's great. Yeah. Funny guy and smart. Yeah. Good author, too. Yeah, he is. So we talked through his background and how he got started, and um, and he has many strong opinions on flight training topics. Oh, so. I want to hear them. Yeah. But uh, but first, what, what have you been up to? What, what have you seen around? Well, I'll tell you what. I just got back from a pretty cool exercise over off the coast of Atlantic City, New Jersey. And this is important for folks to remember. There are some TFRs that will be popping up there around the summer following uh, President Trump as he goes to Bedminster, which is sort of his summer uh, house away from the White House. And that's in like northern Jersey somewhere? It is. It okay. is in northern uh, New Jersey, not far from New York City. So uh, the exercise I participated in was called um, Crosstail, and it was a joint exercise between NORAD and the Coast Guard and the Civil Air Patrol. Hmm. So what do you think happened? Uh, let me guess. Somebody did something bad. Well, we pretended to. Okay. <laughs> so the uh, Civil Air Patrol uh, acted as sort of like the rabbit, if you will, and uh, and violated uh, uh, airspace. I like that, the rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were in a Cessna 182. By the way, they have really nice 182s. CAP? Yeah. Yeah, I've flown one of those before. They are nice. Yeah, that's really, really good. Yeah. So um, we were just pretending like we were regular GA pilots taking a, a tour up the coast, which was beautiful, around Atlantic City. It's just gorgeous. And as any you know pilot would expect, it was a beautiful day, puffy clouds and all. And then out of the blue came swooping in on our tail and then left wing. We saw a ginormous orange helicopter it was, sweet it was scary man <laughs> if i was wow if i was at the controls i would have freaked out 
So <laughs> it's good to know that we yeah. can count on you to keep it under control. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, anyway, it was uh, pretty scary. You know, I can imagine how this could uh, really affect people when they're flying along and they don't mean to bust a TFR. You know, we do our our due diligence mm-hmm. before we fly. But a lot of times, if you're used to uh, any area and you know the scenery, you know where you can go and not go, that's kind of when pilots get in trouble with this. When they don't check the notams and a TFR pops up, you know, for a VIP. Yeah. So how close did they get? I would say just a few paces off the left wing, probably oh. about maybe, I don't know, 20 yards or no so. No way. Well, maybe, maybe my... That's awesome. Maybe I underestimated it or overestimated how close I don't know. It probably wasn't that far. I mean, could, you could hear it. Yeah, it was, well, it's, if it's close enough to hear it, it's it close. was pretty. It was pretty close. Yeah, the whole thing to me, it was interesting, but I could see how it could be very unnerving. So they squawked at us on one twenty one point five. Okay, basically said, "Hey, do you hear us?" And so the pilots um, I was with, they basically their their playbook said to ignore the helicopter for a while. Hmm. Now this so maybe could, they're not tuned to one twenty one five. Right, right. Yeah. Or they weren't tuned to the frequency, or they were busy, or uh, not paying attention. Yeah. So uh, the helicopter got pretty insistent, you know, about about that, and then um, and finally the pilots did acknowledge, and so the uh, helicopter, which their call their call sign was Zombie One, <laughs> and Zombie Two. Is I, what does cool that mean? It's what? like the pilot that they're intercepting as a zombie because he's just flying along. I guess. I, that is kind of interesting. Was, I thought a call handle was really cool. That is cool. Um, and so, um, but they, they were pretty insistent, you know, turn heading 150 and basically turn away from the TFR. Hmm. And so we did that and uh, their instructions were to, as, you know, escort us to an, an imaginary airfield and hmm. land. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. It was a joint operation between NORAD and Coast Guard and the Civil Air Patrol. And the NORAD folks say, hey, look, we're not in the business to stop general aviation aircraft from going anywhere, but we are in the business of protecting the airspace. Yeah. So their goal is not to to do this kind of thing, but the goal is to inform folks. Hmm. Uh, Coast Guard uh, trained with them because it was like a joint training mission. Yeah. And so uh, the question I had, Ian, was, well, how do I know? Because NORAD flies F-16s. Yeah, sure. And, and or, Yeah, right. And this is based out of Atlantic City, uh New Jersey, and there's there's a, a fighter wing there, and they scramble F-16Cs. And so I said, well, hey, how do you know yeah. what to scramble? Yeah, an right. F-16 or a helicopter or what? Not exactly. I mean, your 182 and an F-16 aren't exactly evenly matched. That's what I found out. And yeah. uh, although, uh, although Major Scott was purposely vague, a great guy, by the way, he operates out of Pensacola, which is really kind of cool to think about NORAD operating out of Pensacola yeah, for the cool. whole country yeah. north america yeah and they do they do have separate wings and all but without going down that road anyway so the helicopter was used in this case because we're in a 182 yeah and uh flying kind of slow but even the 182 had to slow down yeah for this huh but uh sometimes they'll scramble f-16 and uh, there was nbc uh personality that, that was in an f-16 and and they demonstrated the same thing in that wait a second they got in an F-16 know, and you were in the 182? I asked. Oh, man. I, I asked, man. Oh. But you know what? It was to our advantage because I understand the F-16 cockpit kind of got a little sloppy, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so uh, you know, I think the pilots do that. They purposely yeah. try, and, and that's their fun. No, you know? we, we love our TV comrades, but oh, I'm just saying. Gosh. No, we, uh, we were fine. But um, the, they do use both. I was on the flight line when they cranked up those um, those fighter jets. Yeah. First of all, you couldn't hear anything. Yeah. And the, the heat 
from the back of the exhaust was oh, incredible. I believe, I believe that. I, and I was trying to do pictures and video, and I was just getting banged around, just just trying to stand there. Wow. So uh, that's a pretty, I mean, that's a fight, mean fighting machine. You don't want to go face-to-face with the F-16. So more of the story is check the notums. Check the notums, especially this summer when you know VIPs are going to travel. Yeah. And I was going to tell our podcast listeners, it's pretty easy to find them at AOPA.org. Just go to our main homepage, and then you could go to the Go Fly tab, and then uh, you'll see the the TFRs listed right there. And there's several several things that would be helpful to folks, including if it happens to them, they might want to um, get the intercept procedures, nice. you know, printed out ahead nice. of time. Yeah, cool, good. Yeah. So All right. cool information, uh, interesting exercise. Glad it was not for real. All right, good. So you'll keep your nose clean from now on. That's good. I will try. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to the news. Um, we're going to start out, we're going to build to the top today. Yeah, we've got um, a lot to talk about today. Yeah, yeah, it's been really busy. So we'll start with just a quick piece of news. Uh, Cessna, we mentioned at the top, pushing diesel. They've been working on this for a couple of years. And now uh, here that both FAA and EASA has certified the Skyhawk, the 172 JTA. That is neat. And so they, um, they have, like you said, they've been working on it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, something that we don't really discuss a lot of times is uh, price because we don't know what yeah. the prices are. Yeah. But this one looks like it's going to come in at a little bit of a premium, about $60,000 over a brand new 172. Yeah. Yeah. Normally so, aspirated. I guess yeah. And I guess that's, you know, the diesels are a little more expensive. This is the Continental, this is the CD155. Right. And it's got the, um, you know, the NXI, the G1000 NXI panel. That's a neat panel. Sort of. Yep. Um, so yeah, it, it is a bit of a premium that would they say you make it up in at least in the rest of the world in well, lower fuel costs, you could, right? Because yeah. this is aircraft that we were talking about you know, just before the podcast. You could use this aircraft in Africa and South America, a lot of unimproved areas that's real hard to get, you know, avgas. Yeah. So diesel will be a lot easier to grab. And really, you know, there are plenty of flight operations that could use this. In fact, you know, a, a lot of uh, outreach organizations might be interested in this too. Yeah. And uh, improve takeoff distance, you know, as well. Yeah. So, and, and climb. You know what I love about these diesels is, um, and I think maybe we've talked about this, is, is the FADEC. You've got single lever, yeah. lever power. Um, it's like, you know, heat start, you push a button to do run-ups. It's all electronically controlled, electronic ignition, everything else. It's like Like that, a car. Yeah. I mean, really, that's where we should be. So it's really nice to see some of that. You know, in a flight training program, it's like that's well, it's to a get easy, rid of that hurdle. easier to learn. Yeah, and pilots could remember that, and it's more familiar to them. Yeah, yeah, I like all that. Yeah, so that's good. So from uh, you know a positive uh, certification story to a negative certification oh story, you mentioned this NavWorks. The NavWorks. Now yeah. these guys were at the head of the curve in the ADSB situation, mm-hmm. and they've been battling some issues yeah, ever since. But I, I think that um, that folks that were early adopters are very interested in following NavWorks. Yeah. So there was the proposed AD. You might remember for the position source, right? The WASP position source. This is one of the key components of an ADSB box. They got to know where you are. You do. And this is one of the cheaper units. Right. And it turns out maybe there's a reason uh, because FAA says, although it's interesting, there are a couple of points we'll get into this. The FAA says the position source is unreliable. Well, how do I know? Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's kind of interesting, though. You know, this final idea is out. And now, 
owners have, it's seven months to comply with. That's a long time for an AD. Yeah, and we, I mean, when I th- you figure, I think. yeah, it, when you figure that it's that's a position good. source. Yeah, but but now you don't have to be automatically equipped with it until 2020. Yeah, so. although it's funny you say that. It's like that, that's, that's coming tr- soon, though. It is coming soon. And it's true, but FAA has actually been hard on people who have ADSB installed but have issues with it. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and so it's like for them to turn around and then say, well, but seven you know, months. you got seven months, so mm. that's kind of interesting. Well, you make a good point because you don't want erroneous information. Right. Because yeah, they are sense. they are gathering that. It's right. like it's not mandated, but right. um, but if you do have it, they use it. So so there's, what, about 800 to 1,000 of these units out there now? Yep. And those folks, like we said, were early adopters, really trying to get on board, do the right thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, AOPA, we have one in uh, in one of the 152s uh-huh. um, because we went with a variety of boxes at the beginning. Right. Uh, and that was one of them. And uh, in fact, I think it was installed at, at an A&P, uh, not at an avionics shop. Gotcha. If I remember correctly. I think that's the case. So it's, you know, the one thing about this that kind of bothers me is that the companies, they're going to, so there's an updated position source available Okay, and they're charging for it. Oh, that's that. I was just getting to that part in the article. I was just looking through that. Yeah. That's uh, an interesting strategy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. They also, for people who are maybe a little apprehensive to buy from Navworks because of this AD, they are coming out with a second gen unit, which is right. going to address this, and so theoretically, in the future, you, they won't have this issue. Oh, and so that's the 2.0 system. Yeah, and that one lists out at about two thousand dollars. Yeah, yep. So I, I think gotcha. it, but what is it? it? Varies, right? Depending on if you have the first system already installed, anywhere from it's going to be from three hundred fifty to six hundred bucks. Okay, to get this new position source. I gotcha. So yeah, not not a great deal for folks who have that. Well, at least there's some type of resolution here. And the That's main thing point. is we don't want pilots, you know, left, <laughs> pun intended, up in the air. Yeah, it's <laughs> a great point. Um, hey, let's go back to a good news story. Yeah, Garmin. We've talked about the G5. Right. Um, this is their non-TSO'd, previously just attitude indicator. Right. And now they've got an HSI. Yeah, so it's like a, it gives you directional information, and it fits nicely in the panel. And yeah. we should tell our podcast listeners and members, it's in the Sweeps 172. Yeah, we got one. Got one right at the beginning. We're going to have it installed soon. It actually, the Sweeps airplane, I just saw it this morning. It came back from Final Paint. Oh, nice. Um, it looks really cool. It's really sort of bright and um, just a really unique modern design. And so in a couple of weeks, it's going to go and have that HSI installed. And so we'll have the dual G5 setup. That would be neat that yeah. for whoever wins that. And unfortunately, you and I are not eligible. We will not be winning it. That's right. Uh, somebody will. It will not be us. Yeah. So when you pair it with a VHF NAVCOM or a GPS NAV, mm-hmm. uh, it can be considered primary, right? Yeah. For magnetic heading. That's, yeah. that's really cool. Primary field of view. guidance. Yeah. GPS work. Yeah, and it's uh, you know you so you got a dual screen setup. Yeah. Um, they've got battery backup, and yeah, it's it's a neat little kit. Really cool, really like, cool stuff. I like it. And again, this is not a break the bank deal. Yeah, it's um you know aircraft ownership has its advantages and disadvantages, and I and I, I just say a rule of thumb when I owned an airplane, whatever I paid for something, mm-hmm. I would it would be half to an equivalent amount to put it in. Yeah. Yeah, I just so think it's a good that. rule of thumb. But but you're looking at about twenty four hundred dollars yep, for the for single, each one. single G five HSI. Yep. And or the combination available for forty five, forty six hundred bucks. Yeah, so you get a bit of a break to buy two. And I'm telling you, people it's you know, I was at a Garmin and uh but maybe about a month ago yeah. now. And uh, people are buying these things. They are making them like crazy. There's a backup. It's a great idea. Yeah. And we, it does have the battery backup in yeah, it. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's, um, it is a neat box. And really, I think 
people are really latching on to it. So now you know, see how it goes. Quick sidebar. So Garmin is uh, in this type of avionics suite, they really have taken the lead on a lot of stuff. And some of the earlier folks uh, like Aspen ha- were out there at the, mm-hmm. the very beginning for yep. the experimental crowd. And then, you know, gradually moving into production aircraft. But um, I hate to bring it up, but there's yet another uh, radio manufacturer out there that's been in the news. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We talked about that last time, didn't right. we, with Bendix yeah. King? Bendix King. And yeah. actually, I just wanted to update our podcast listeners. I did reach out to Bendix King again this week a couple of times, and I'm still waiting to hear back hmm. to see if they have some flat rate repair schedules for me. Yeah, because what we're hearing is our, not for good. Our members. Not good. Right. Yeah. So more on that, definitely. Let's talk about some legislation. Okay. It's been a big week for that, for aviation. Yeah. Obviously, if you if you read, you know, the Times or watch Fox News or whatever, it's like you know that Washington in general is uh, really active right now. Yeah, they had a little bit going on yesterday as yeah. we speak. Yeah, but um, but lots of aviation stuff going on as well. So the first one we're going to talk about is something that um, has been working in the background, was just introduced. Yeah. And this is a really cool bill that we're going to be talking a lot about. This could help uh, help out a lot of people in a lot of airports. Now, it's called, it's a bipartisan bill, which, number one, that's pretty interesting to think about. Yep. To have, you know, bipartisan support on anything these days is yep. good. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's, so it's called the Flight Act, F-L-I-G-H-T. And what would that stand for? <laughs> forward, Go for it. <laughs> forward-looking investment. In GA, hangers, and tarmacs. Okay. F-L-I-G-H-T. Nice. So, uh, introduced in the Senate uh, on June 8th, which uh, was yesterday. Yesterday, as we record. Right. Yep. So, Senate Bill 1320. Uh-huh. And uh, a couple of pilots are behind this. Yeah, right. Because we do have some pilot friends in the Senate. We do. Um, And introduced by um, Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma. Right. And uh, Tammy Duckworth, Illinois. By the way, we've never talked about Tammy. Um, amazing, amazing woman. She yeah. was in the military, right? Yeah, she was a military helicopter pilot. Yeah. Injured in, uh, I might have been Iraq, uh, one of them at Iraq, Afghanistan. Did you see her at the Bob Hoover Awards? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's, she seems she's like fantastic. an incredible. We should have yeah. her as a guest on the show. That's a great idea. Oh, man. Stay tuned for that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, a lot of uh, what we see coming out of aviation legislation is, it's reactionary, yes. um, a little bit. You know, the FAA bill. It's like sometimes they'll have some some positive sort of stuff in that. But this is all about investment in airports, investment in infrastructure. The infrastructure, which is the one thing that that uh, President Trump really said that he wanted to do, is invest in our infrastructure. Yep. And this is really the the construction aspect of that. You yeah. Know, the the tarmac. Yeah. The buildings. So you know. yeah, it's a really interesting thing. As part of the FAA airport fund. There's this discretionary money that airports can apply for once right. every, I think it's uh, five years. Right. And the problem is it's not a lot of money. And so it's like airports, they don't necessarily want to apply for just a couple. Because they, they don't get enough to get the job done. Yeah. Right. Right. And so what this bill would allow people, allow airports to do is roll over that money to get a big chunk one at a time. So they could get a project and see it through to its completion. Yeah. For, I, I think, you. a total of 750000 which is, then you're starting to talk about real money. That yeah, you can that's actually significant. Do projects Absolutely. With. Yeah. Um, there's a couple other provisions that are really, I think, going to be interesting and important. One of them is the FAA could designate disaster relief airports. So what does that mean, a disaster relief airport, Ian? Yeah, so this is, you know, we have various, like, reliever, you know, airline schedule, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. This would be a category of airports essentially allowing FAA to develop a network around the country Okay. Um, that we call disaster relief so that they could operate. We could essentially count on them as this national network of airports where 
uh, let's say there's you know an area where there's lots of tornadoes or flooding or flooding right. or hurricanes or something like that. So this would be basically a backup. Yeah. For infrastructure. Yeah. So it, it would say, hey, we know that, I don't know, you know, this airport in Oklahoma, it's like there's this tornado alley. And so we're going right. to keep this airport in perpetuity. We're going to fund it. We're going to make sure that it's always supported. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Or as this infrastructure and tool. closer to where AOPA is on the on the East Coast, North Carolina gets hammered with hurricanes a lot. So yeah. does Florida. Yeah. And I guess that would also a disaster relief airport in that area would main you know, it, stuff would be maintained in case something uh of a, of a national emergency uh, happened and then folks could get, could get supplies and get help. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so it keeps the airport open. Yeah, so that's kind of a quick and dirty of what it does, but it's really nice to see some proactive legislation there um, coming out of the Senate. And um, I think, you know, it's a good news sort of bill. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I like it. Yeah. And we'll then and, and, uh, basically Senator Inhofe and Senator Duckworth, uh, they're our friends. Yeah. So... Uh, Anything they can do, uh, anything we can do to help them out, we're I'm for it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's good news. Uh, let's talk about the bad news. Okay. This is what everybody's been talking about this week. The uh, ATC plan. Right. The uh, White House ATC plan. Okay. So I was uh, watching this as it unfolded live at the White House. Okay. And uh, I, I had some reservations about this. The thing that um, I would like to argue about is I don't think that our airspace system is ancient, broken, and horrible. Yeah. And I, I think it does work. Hasn't It hasn't been that way in my experience. I recently did a, uh, an assignment last weekend, and I, I was actually, I'm a VFR pilot, you know? Yeah. I was cleared through the Philadelphia Class B airspace. Right on. They could not have been nicer. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, I got the traffic advisories and everything, and it was just a smooth trip. Yeah. I've always found that it worked. When I was down in Atlanta, I would get VFR advisories in my air coop around the Class B airspace. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, nice. and I really haven't had a problem yeah. with our with our ATC. Yeah. System. Yeah. I mean, it works great because it's uh, it provides a level playing field. Right. You know, it's like the airlines are the primary user in terms of operations, obviously, um, right. but we're equal users in that we have the same services. They, it's an incredibly safe system. Right. It's relatively efficient. The argument for privatization is that a private company could do better on next gen and stuff like that. And, and next gen is it's yeah, taken a while. It has, but it's moving ahead. And we talked about ADSB. That's part of it. Yeah, it's uh, we've already we got a mandate for twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. so and it's coming. It is coming. Right. Um. And and it will be fully built out. You know, I mean, AOPA. We've said that we're open to looking at at various solutions to help right. make the system more efficient. And but, that's true. But not for user fees. Not for uh, user fees. Dead set against that. Not for user fees. It, to me, it doesn't look like a win-win situation for even traveling airline passengers. Yeah. I don't think any savings will be passed on to them at all. Yeah, you know, when this came out last year, Delta was against it. They were kind of they, the outlier, right? I think in the airline they still world. are against it. Yeah, and they wrote a white paper and basically said, hey, look, passengers, you're going to pay more right. with this privatized system. And I'm not sure. I, I don't think that the privatization would fly without a biggie like Delta if they're the holdout. Yeah, so it will be interesting to see what happens in Congress with this, you know, kind of who comes out who uh, for it and against it. I, Democrats, they say, are generally against it at this point. Yeah, but now one, one thing that it, I think it's pointed towards is trying to get a more stable funding mm -hmm. source for the FAA, right? Yeah, so they say. Right. Now, yeah. what about all the uh, air traffic controllers that are at work right now? I wonder if that would eliminate some of their positions 
or change that operation. Well, this is where you get into the politics, right? Right. So I think that Congress has been smart to try and get them on board from the beginning. Right. And so has offered assurances that they seem to be happy about. Okay. Whether or not that'll, you know, maintain through the whole process, I don't know. Right. But so far, um, they've been fairly okay with it. I think ALPA came out in favor. Southwest pilots came out in favor. You know, in past years, maybe where we've had really strong support from all pilots against user fees, I don't know that we're going to see that. It's a little bit more fragmented now. It is. Huh. Yeah. I, I wonder why everyone is so down on the FAA uh, for the next gen stuff. Because to me, I mean, it's not moving. It wasn't moving super quick, but things were moving ahead and are moving ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see issues elsewhere in the FAA. That we'd like to address, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the airport's division, for one. There are other things that really are broken that need yes. fixing. Yeah, um, it's like ATC's working pretty well. It works real well. It's the safest yeah. in, in the world yeah. right now. Yeah. And we, we have airspace that's available to all of our members and non-members alike. Yeah. Without having to pay onerous user fees. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that I was thinking about, just chit-chatting, is that if there was some kind of a fee system involved... You know, I wonder if that would be a reservation for pilots to to file a flight plan or to pay for something like that. Yeah. And that could lead to a detriment in safety overall. I totally agree. It's yeah. like, I mean, you know, flight, it's flight following cost us money to use. I wouldn't use it. Um, it would be really worth thinking about yeah. before you did it. And that could lead to unsafe procedures. Yeah. No, so I, could I, have I totally the, agree. It could have the exact opposite effect. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, Canada is taking the tact of just a flat rate. They have, I think it's a yearly fee for all GA above, below a certain weight. And it's like, you know, unlimited use of the system for this. But, you know, there are so many potential issues. I mean, first of all, we're not Canada. We have significantly more volume. Right. Um, right. Our airports are better than theirs are. We have more of them. We have a lot more airports. Yeah, it's like, it, it's not, we can't just look at other countries uh-uh. and say, oh, they did it and it's fine. Well, there's no. really no equivalent there's to, not. The, to the USA anywhere else. There's not. Yeah. There's not at all. Not so, for GA. yeah. So, you know, keep uh, keep that in your mind as you're looking through news and all and stuff like that. I, I'll tell you that AOPA will remain and, and always has been against user fees. You know, we have not seen a bill yet. Uh, we'll see what it says. We have to wait and see what it says before we move yep. further. But, yeah. Yeah, our members have been happy with the airspace as it is. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, all right, David, let's talk to somebody who isn't happy about everything in flight training these days. I want to hear about this. And and that's uh, Mr. Machado. Um, you'll know he's a longtime contributor to AOPA. Yes. Um, stepped away last year to start to focus a little more on his business. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been doing interactive courses. He's written books. He does audio books. He's a prolific writer. And yeah, he is a busy, busy guy. He is. So we caught up with him. Uh, heard about, like I said, his background, and um, more importantly, what he thinks about flight training these days. I want to hear what Rod says about flight training. Rod, thank you uh, so much for joining us. I, I appreciate it. Um, obviously, we've worked together for a number of years, but uh, it's really nice just to step back and, and talk a little bit. So I'm, I'm excited. Oh, me too, Ian. A- absolutely. And you know how much I enjoyed working with you over the years. So uh, uh, it's one of the reasons why I was excited about doing this uh, this podcast with you. Good. Thanks. Um, okay. So help help me orient everybody. Where'd you grow up? Um, how'd, you, how'd you get into flying? Are you one of these airport kids or was it later in life or how did that work? Yes, actually, um, I was uh, uh, an airport kid, uh, not because I was abandoned by my parents, uh, although my grandfather <laughs> did... Uh, 
did uh, I saw him erasing my name on my birth certificate one time. He kind of gave me suspicions, but uh, yeah, right. anyway, uh, no, I grew up in Northern California, and uh, I um, learned to fly to uh, Amelia Reed Aviation in uh, at Reed Hillview Airport. Uh, right near San Jose in the Bay Area, and that was I, it. Was in 1970 that uh, I started hanging out at the airport. Of course, like anybody else, I was when I was young. I, I, the uh, airplanes would fly over, and I'd, I'd hop off the uh, the dinner table seat and run outside and point up in the air, airplane, airplane, and uh, that was I was always. I do the same thing now, except except I put pants on before I oh, actually. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my neighbors are very happy about <laughs> good. that. Yeah, that's good. And uh, but then you know I. Obtained my private pilot license in high school, and then in my teens, uh, I had the uh, commercial license, and then I began instructing, and then I worked my way through uh, through college doing uh, uh, teaching people how to fly. And uh, then I started doing – I had the great fortune to be uh, involved in teaching accelerated ground training at John Wayne Airport. Uh, I moved from Northern California to Southern California in about the late 1973, and uh, I did uh, ground training as I was flight instructing, and that allowed me to – sort of polish my skills at communication because mm-hmm. you know when you're talking to people in three days and you have to teach them you're basically giving them 35 hours of, of ground training and uh, you're accelerating the training and when you say something and they sit there looking at you like a dog looking at a fan then uh, you realize you have to develop a different way of saying something or at least um, you know be able to clarify what you say so um, I developed a lot of useful teaching tools and for me in terms of uh, variable explanations, but it really did. uh, um, I'll tell you what, teaching that type of ground school is, is worth, uh, is worth a year of graduate school in psychology in Mm. terms of your ability to, to communicate and uh, modify behavior. So it was very valuable for me. And then I worked with uh, AOPA starting in, uh, if if you can believe this, 1978, I started teaching safety seminars and one of the first uh, flight instructor clinics. And then I, I did that all the way up through the mid 80s. And then, uh, you know, my background's in psychology. So I went out and uh, did a lot of non-aviation speaking for businesses, doctors, lawyers, uh, bankers, and what have you. And uh, I realized one of the one of the great epiphanies in my life that everything I wanted to learn about life, I could learn in an airplane. And uh, that was a truly wonderful experience for me because I was always even though I was still flight instructing, I was always wondering, yeah, maybe there's something else to be learned by being away from the airport. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and by that, I mean in terms of most important things you learn in life and where you acquire your wisdom. Yeah. And uh, I realized that wasn't the case. You can learn everything you want to know about life by teaching people to fly, by being associated with pilots uh, in some way, shape, or form. And uh, so since 1990, it's been full-time in aviation for me and uh, very fortunate to have uh, written for AOPA for 18 years. I think it was Flight Training Magazine for 25, 26 years, something yeah. like that. Wow. So wonderful, wonderful experience for me. It's uh, just I've been very, very blessed uh, by doing that. And I will say this, this one of the uh, neat things that happened to me when I was a kid was uh, I, Amelia Reed, one of the neatest ladies that I, I've ever had a chance to meet who ran the flight school at uh, Reed Hillview Airport. Uh, I must have sat on her doorstep for two or three weeks uh, just uh, bugging her about a, a job. I wanted a job pumping gas. And she finally hired me because she knew I was motivated. Cause, you know, I, and I was a good gas boy because I could get like 50 gallons of gas in a 40-gallon tank. Oh, that's so I had, magic. I had, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had that skill. Good for business, yeah. bad for pilots. But <laughs> anyway, I improved my technique. 
and uh, managed to get the exact quantity and as appropriate. But huh. anyway, so that's what happened. And uh, aviation is just a it, it's just a fun place to be. And I might also add too that in uh, 1989, I wrote uh, I wrote my first book okay. on the Instrument Pilot's Travel Guide. And since then, I've written seven more and now have videos um, and uh, many videos. But now I do e-learning courses that uh, uh, pilots find very valuable. Just finished one course that's a six-hour course on handling in-flight emergencies, most common emergencies that uh, pilots might experience. And, you know, a chance favors the prepared mind, so it's unlikely a pilot would ever have any one of these emergencies. In-flight fire, gear doesn't come down, electrical fire, petroleum-based fire, elevator malfunction, and so on. But um, the course does cover that. So those are many of the things I talked about, by the way, in safety seminars and uh, flight instructor clinics. Hmm. Let me, uh, you know, I want, I want, I do want to talk about a lot of the courses and everything else, but I, I, you said something that, that struck me, you, you know, that basically you hung out on the doorstep and uh, begged for a job. And I think there's lots of talk in aviation about Oh, kids don't care about flying, and they're not willing to do the work and everything else. And I mean, having having gone that path, um, how do you see it? What do you think? I mean, are those opportunities still available for for people who want them? Um, well, structurally, no, uh, not like they used to be. You, it's very, and I say no, and let, and let me qualify that. It's very difficult to walk out onto an airport uh, as a young person, uh, you know, any any reasonable size airport, uh, and not be shadowed by the gendarmes and yeah. uh, by the TSA and the secret police. And uh, that's, but that's just the way the world is nowadays. So, so it's very, very difficult. However, however, there's one function of human nature that never changes, and that is when a when an older person sees a younger person who has interest in uh, in general aviation that that older person's you know you, you would call it the the parental nature of that individual um, tends to want to do something to help the younger person so my recommendation is if any younger person wants to get involved in aviation and since it's unlikely you're going to be able to find your way out onto a reasonable size airport not a small one but a reasonable size airport if that's assuming that's where this young person lives near a reasonable size airport my recommendation just as a general one is to get involved is to make contact with folks who fly airplanes. In other words, attend an EAA meeting, attend uh, an AOPA safety seminar, attend many of the FAA's wonderful safety seminar programs, and stick out your hand and make a friend in aviation. You make a friend with somebody that that, uh, lives nearby, that owns an airplane or flies an airplane, you will will, uh, create such great favor and inspire older people to want to do what they do best, and that is to help teach younger people about things they know. Hmm. So it's a great way to get involved in aviation. One of the best kept secrets um, that uh, we we, uh, we don't talk about, you know, nowadays you can't, it's as if you don't want your younger person talking to an older person. And when they do, yeah. uh, the younger person yells out, uh, stranger danger, stranger danger. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, um, and by the way, if you're ever going to run out, use stranger danger, um, I'm waiting for the time when I can use that at my advanced age. Uh, and I'll, I think I'll use it during a ramp check. Yeah. FAA inspector shows up, stranger danger. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure it'll have the same effect. No. But for young, <laughs> yes, for young people though, uh, making a friend in aviation by attending any of the local um, EAA, FAA, AOPA, any of these programs, what a great way to to get to get into have airport access uh, to make a friend to get flight time to get the experience. It is a great way to do it, and people mm. don't do that very much. So that would be my recommendation. Mm. Okay, interesting. 
Now you, you mentioned, you know, you've done obviously some writing and now you've uh, written the books and created the courses. Um, obviously you have enough experience and you've met enough people that you could fly professionally for a living. You could have all this time, I suppose. Why did you decide to stick with the, the flight instruction and the, the knowledge route? Well, um, you, you know, I, again, I started flying in 1970, uh, and uh, there about 73, 74, I, I uh, was was focused on becoming, I wanted to become an airline pilot. That's what I wanted to do. So in 1976, I uh, was 23. I had my ATP, and um, I was I had about 2,500 hours of flying time. And at that time, I just instructed uh, quite a bit uh, in the uh, early 1970s. One year building 1,240 hours. Wow. So I, I, so that much time in one year, it's still a great deal of time. Yeah. But so I became airline qualified. Well, no, let me put it this way. I became qualified to obtain the ATP, and I did. Hmm. And then I was interviewed by United Airlines in 1976. And they uh, they realized that, you know, I, I had 2,500 hours of uh of a single engine time. And, you know, of course that made me their man. It should have made me their man because if the airplane lost an engine and there was only one left, you know, I'm the guy that's qualified to fly on one engine. Okay. I, but see, it, I see where you're going with this. That's good. All that yeah. Time, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Anyway, so they they did not hire me, and of course I, I can't blame them for not. I just didn't have a lot of multi time, didn't have any turbine time, and so consequently, uh, that's when I got involved in teaching ground school and realized that um, for for me, teaching ground school, doing flight training, and involved in that educational level, writing books and developing educational material, I just much more enjoyed that. That was that was. That was my calling. That's what I wanted to do. And I have not regretted any moment of that. And there were opportunities where I could fly for a living after uh, 1976. In other words, fly for a corporation and then fly for an airline. It's just not something I wanted to do. But it's it would have been a great job, no doubt about it. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm interested in this idea that people feel, obviously they feel the draw to the airlines. I mean, a lot of people, it seems like a natural progression. But um, and, and there was always talk about, Flight instructing is not a career; it's a it's a springboard. But um, you've made a career of it, as as have many others. And it seems sure. to me that um, if you're uh, if you stay busy, if you're active, and if you're good at it, uh, then you have every reasonable expectation that it could be a career. Everything that you said is absolutely true. And uh, I made good money as a flight instructor, and I'll, I'll tell you how I did it. Um, number one, it, 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 you have to run it like a business. Um, I, let me just let me qualify that. Number one, you have to be in a place where there is business. All right. Mm, so yeah. if you're out in the in the, uh, uh, let's say um, Bob's uh, log cabin airport, uh, there is no such airport there. Uh, then, <laughs> so if you're at that airport, you're not going to get that kind of business. But in many major metropolitan airports, um, or you know reasonable sized airports, there's potential for that kind of flight training business. And what I did, uh, Ian, um, and not because you know I'm so smart, I just always associated with people that had extra skills, extra insights, and you know, that's how you learn. And so I learned from them. And then, of course, I colored that based on my own experience, too. What I realized was, uh, if I were going to make a living at this, at that time, I think in the 1980s, I was charging $35 an hour, which was top dollar for uh, instructors at that time. And what I would do is I would sign, uh, I would work with a student, but the student had to commit uh, to fly two lessons a week. And each lesson consisted of two hours. 
and uh, I would fly with uh, students three lessons a day. So that's six hours of revenue time a day, six times 35. Let's just equate that to uh, $200 a day. And then I would fly six days a week. So $200 times six, that's $1,200 a week revenue time. And that ends up being, uh, you know, close to $4,500 plus a month give or take, uh, for uh, flight training at that time. Now, what made what allowed me to, in, to ensure that I had that kind of revenue, such as when the weather's bad, students don't fly? Well, I would just do ground training in, uh, in lieu of the actual flight training. The, the way that I made that work was I made the students sign a contract. And what, what wasn't a big contract, it was just a little contract. And that committal was important. The student had to cancel 24 hours in advance if the student couldn't make it. And of course, I wasn't rigid in terms of that implementation, but you have to be assured that you're going to have consistency um, if you're going to have a reliable income. So that's how I ensured students would do that. Of course, I was a big softy and I did let people slide, but not enough to really affect my revenue stream that that much. Mm. And um, and as a result, uh, you know, I think out of all the training I did, I, I only lost, well, I only had two students fail check rights. I want to be careful how I say that. I only had two <laughs> students fail check rights over the years. And um, the reputation that you develop was such that, um, uh, you know, people would come to you and ask you to train them. And the best kept secret for getting business as a flight instructor, and, and I don't quite understand why more flight instructors don't do that, do this, and that is to teach safety seminars in the FAA uh, FAST team program. Yeah. In other words, teach FAA safety seminars, go out there, put your programs together, uh, see how other people do it, make your own program, do safety seminars, contribute to general aviation that way. And I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those over the years. And uh, all for free. I, I just did them for free. I'd travel around, do them for free. Hmm. And so consequently, people would say, hey, that Rod Machado guy looks like a fun guy to fly with. And uh, they'd come. And I had more. They'd come and ask me for uh, my card and I'd give it to them. I had more business that uh, I possibly could know what to, uh, to do with Ian. So it was, it was really good. I was never short on a supply of students. Interesting. Huh. Um, what about humor? Obviously that's a signature aspect of your presentations and your books and everything else. Have you always used it as, as part of teaching? Um, are you naturally, you know, are you the, the family stand-up comedian? I mean, how did, uh, was it a conscious decision? Um, is this, is this you? How did you get into that? Um, actually, I, no, I, I'm not, I'm not the family stand-up comedian. My grandfather was, <laughs> uh, which is why when I was young, he called me over and he said, I want you to know something. He's a little Portuguese guy. I said, uh, you, you were adopted. He'd say that in a thick Portuguese accent. And I, I'd say, I, I was adopted. He says, yes, yes, uh, but they brought you back. So, uh, that, <laughs> That's my grandfather's humor. Yeah, I mean, he was. I had two grandfathers that were really wild. So in teaching ground school, see, you get me all excited talking about these things. In teaching ground school, um, the a fundamental aspect of teaching anybody anything is uh, to understand how to modify the behavior. It's called behavior modification. And since we know that learning is a relatively permanent change in behavior, and that is a, a motor skill, perceptual skill, or a cognitive skill, I'm teaching these cognitive skills, and I'm thinking, how can I get them to go from not knowing something to knowing something? So I had to reinforce that behavior. I have to get their attention. There's no better way to do that than to use humor. Now, the big misconception there, and this is a big misconception. People, 
people always get this this wrong, uh, and that is they think using humor is telling jokes. I don't really tell jokes. That is like believing you know believing that you have to tell jokes to use humor is like believing that preignition is the ability to see sparks from the future, and uh, and that's just not true. Well, pretty much. And so what I would do is uh, using humor as a, as a teacher, as an instructor, is more properly defined by being playful. And that is such a powerful, powerful tool, not being childish, but being childlike. And uh, that's what I did in class uh, when teaching people how to fly and in an airplane. I would just be very playful. And there's, as my dad once said, he told me, never let anybody mistake kindness for weakness. And so in being playful, it's easy for people to perhaps look at you and say, oh, gee, he's not serious about anything. But I knew exactly when to become serious as necessitated by the situation. So um, I used humor a lot. And in order to find out how to do that in 1970, I think it was 1975, um, I started going to the uh, comedy clubs in Newport Beach, in uh, Seal oh, Beach, wow. no Los Angeles. Huh. No, and I didn't, no, I didn't do stand of comedy. That's not what I did. What I did was I walked in with a pen uh, and notepad, and uh, I started looking at what it was comedians were doing that allowed them to have that kind of connectivity with their audience. And the single most important conclusion I drew from that was that you could walk on stage, you could say the wildest, craziest things. And um, it, it, I mean, you could be controversial. You could you could say uh, very, very strange things. But if the audience knew you were being playful, they never were threatened by you. And I bring the same thing to the cockpit. And of course, I do that because it's just it's just a better way to, to teach. It's more fun for me. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right. So I want to get into a couple of uh, subjects I know you're passionate about. Talk to me about you. You wrote a book uh, recently, one of your newer books, on essentially the essence of flying an airplane. I mean, there's lots of private pilot books and instrument flying books, and a lot of sort of technical aspects, but not since maybe stick and rudder have we seen something that's really dedicated to this idea of how do you how do you properly manipulate the controls and this whole aspect of of you know properly controlling the airplane. So, tell me about how that idea came about and why you think the book's important and, um, and why you're so passionate about it. Well, again, I, I am am passionate about uh, most things in aviation, in particular, the stick and rudder concept, attitude instrument or basic attitude flying concept. Stick and rudder is an excellent book. One of my favorites, I might add. And uh, Wolfgang Lingavisha had it right with almost everything he said. And that was back in the um, early 1940s. And um, Wolfgang Langevisha also said that uh, by 1952, airplanes would no longer have rudders. You know, he, he understood the concept of the air coop. And get rid of the rudders, you essentially get rid of the spin problem. Because you can't spin an air coop, primarily because you can't stall it. Yeah. And so, and I know, I've tried. It's just not possible to stall one of those things. With that, that concept in mind, he was, he was wrong on that, but he was right on everything else. The problem is that um, in World War II, you had pilots and instructors who had to teach stick, basic stick and rudder skills because there's no way you could fly a P-51, a P-38, or any of those aircraft without good stick and rudder skills because you would die. It's it's just like that, and that's why an instructor or a pilot could go from in nineteen uh, in the nineteen forties World War II go from flying a P fifty one and read the manual and hop in a P thirty eight or P thirty eight to P fifty one or T six or whatever the case may be, and uh, literally 
fly the airplane safely, as long as they read the manual, of course, uh, because they had good attitude flying skills. So that's always been a, a very important thing for for me in my teaching. I was fortunate at Amelia Reed Aviation to learn in an L2 and be taught by people that were of that uh, that vintage and or that educational disposition, the World War II stick and rudder uh, flight training disposition. And it was a great education for me. But the problem is that over the years, the um, FAA's leadership and guidance has evolved from um, a an awareness of basic stick and rudder skills to more of the airline process, airline philosophy of flying an airplane. And uh, that, uh, of course, as you know, you don't use rudders uh, on on big airliners, except, of course, in the landing environment for, for crosswind correction and, and things like that. But so it's not something that is on the, the radar of most uh, people that are of that particular philosophy. And so we've seen an evolution, a cultural drift, perhaps better phrased, a pedagogical drift from the uh, basic stick and rudder concept of flying to the airline process of flying. And perhaps to make that, uh, to, to, to encapsulate that whole idea, um, there's one idea that expresses exactly where we are at now. There's nothing about flying a big airplane that pertains to flying a small one, but everything about flying a small airplane pertains to flying a big one. It's a generalization, but it's a very, very good generalization. And so consequently, uh, nowadays, we have the ACS. Let's take the commercial ACS. The commercial ACS that was just released by the FAA um, has a stall requirement, in other words, a stall demonstration requirement that exactly replicates the airline stall demonstration requirement. And in an airliner, you don't stall a swept wing jet, as an example, because uh, it's you know, no telling what will happen yeah. with a, a jet like that. It could, you know, perhaps it would roll inverted. I don't know. I don't fly big jets like that, but I, I have some knowledge of them. But it, you certainly can stall small airplanes. But anyway, the point is you don't stall a big jet, so consequently the uh, leadership of the FAA, and I say this with all due respect, um, I'm sure they're well-intentioned, but uh, I just think that they're wrong in how they approach this. You can get a commercial license now without having to physically stall an airplane because the commercial test only requires that a pilot recover at the first indication of the stall, which is the stall horn. So consequently, once you get the private license, which, by the way, does require a demonstration of a stall, once you get that, that will be probably the last time you ever have to demonstrate a stall uh, for any rating that you get after that. And uh, in other words, commercial instrument ATP. Um, So you have a situation now where uh, pilots going for the commercial license are going to stall an airplane recover at the stall, first indication of a stall, which is the stall horn, and not have perhaps any uh, current feel, uh, any uh, re- reasonable feel for what a stall is like. And here's the interesting problem with that. The reason it's important to stall an airplane is because you don't know, many people don't know what's going to happen when their airplane stalls. Because if they're slightly uncoordinated, the airplane may uh, roll, uh, have one wing stall before the other, roll into a uh, spin entry condition. And uh, unless they know, unless they 
recognize that unless they have experience with that and they've had experience enough to reinforce the techniques for recovery, they are going to be uh, helpless uh, by virtue of their ignorance. So that's why it's important for, and for all ratings, in my opinion, to demonstrate the ability to uh, physically stall an airplane and recover from the stall, not just at the private pilot level. And when people say, well, you know, flight instructors can teach um, – they can teach their commercial pilots anything they want. You know, they can teach them how to stall an airplane. Well, the, uh, in other words, refresh their knowledge of stalls. That's not what flight instructors do. Uh, that's, that is a terribly naive understanding, in my opinion, of what the FAA's new stall requirement or non-stall requirement on the commercial ACS is going to lead to. It'll lead to eventually uh, commercial pilots having no experience beyond the private pilot certificate uh, and no current experience, of course, at what a stall is, uh, recovering from a stall, and the many very different conditions that stalls can lead to. So that's how, that's how I see it. I think it's a big mistake on the FA's part. Yeah. So it sounds similar to the... Um this idea in the private ACS with slow flight, where it's the FAA seems to be moving to this idea, not necessarily of demonstration of a full skill, but of acknowledgement of the warning signs and avoidance. You know, we've yes. we've talked about slow flight in the past. They they changed it a little bit with this new um, release, which I was surprised about. So, if you could just describe to us the kind of what it what it changed from and and now what it is and and what you think the implications to that are. The original private pilot PTS required a slow flight demonstration at three to five knots above stall. That was in the uh, original private pilot PTS, hmm. practical standard. And what that meant was that the stall horn was more than likely activated during the entire slow flight demonstration because stall horns are required by Part 23 to activate a minimum of five knots uh, above the stall speed, assuming you know the conditions are such that it's a new stall horn and nothing's plugging the vent or or the stall light for that matter, same thing. Mm-hmm. So um, you know that's that's the way it was supposed to work. So essentially, in slow flight, the student would be hearing the, the stall horn uh, during the entire slow flight maneuver, and the FAA said, well, that's not good because they're hearing the stall horn and they're not reacting to the stall horn as a an alert to recover. The good thing about stalling or uh, doing slow flight at um, the very slow speed of three to five knots above stall is that you are actually operating in the backside of the power curve. You actually have to get that low, about 10 to 12 percent above stall speed in order to be, uh, in order to move to the backside of the power curve. Yeah. And uh, if you don't do that, then you really don't understand that relationship of the region of reversed command. So the FA said, that's not good. We want students uh, to hear the stall horn and think, ah, or stall light, see the stall light. We want them to think recover. And the assumption is that if they hear the stall horn or see the stall light, they won't let the airplane stall. There, and I'll come back to that point in a second. But <clears throat> So what the FA said was, um, in the uh, private pilot ACS, we now want uh, pilots to do slow flight at, uh, first of all, slow the airplane down. This is what it says in the original uh, safety of flight alert that the uh, FA proposed back in August of last year, the SAFO, called the slow flight SAFO. The FA said, we want you to slow down until you hear the stall horn and then note the speed and then uh, increase the speed by two knots to stop the stall horn. In other words, to eliminate it. And then uh, you can add uh, uh, 10 knots to that because the slow flight speed was zero to plus 10 knots above a reference speed. 
So essentially what you have is five, five knots above stall is when the stall horn comes on. You add two knots onto that, that's seven knots. And you're allowed to fly 10 knots above that uh, target speed. So that means you could fly 17 knots above stall speed and demonstrate your slow flight prowess uh, being nowhere in the region of reverse command. In fact, 17 knots above stall speed is typically around 32 to 35 percent of the stall speed, and we know that uh, 1.3 times VSO is the typical required or recommended approach speed for most airplanes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that even goes, that goes much lower for some airplanes, down to Uh, 1.22% for certain short field procedures in some airplanes. So the the point is that the student can demonstrate slow flight now and never experience the region of reverse command. And the uh, FA said with the original private pilot ACS that came out uh, June of uh, last year, uh, if you heard the stall horn during slow flight, that might have resulted in a uh, that could have resulted, depending on the DPE, in a failure because the FA said you should not hear the stall horn. They they got it wrong, wow. and they realized that, that was a mistake. So what what did they change in the modification to the slow flight requirement this year? The modification says this: that if the, nothing else has changed in terms of the speed requirements. You still have to, you know, to identify your target speed. You slow the airplane down till you hear the stall horn, which is ironic in itself because the FAA doesn't want you to hear the stall horn without recovering. (laughs) Slow the airplane down to stall speed. You hear the horn. Add two knots onto that. So you're already seven knots above the air, a minimum of seven knots above the stall speed right there. And then you can add 10 knots onto that uh, as the higher end of the speed at which you can demonstrate slow flight. So that's 17 knots. That hasn't changed. Mm. What ha- and I predicted it wouldn't change uh, because there was, uh, I think the FAA had too much to lose, quite frankly, with uh, the philosophy they've adopted. That, that would have been a great contradiction if that changed. The only thing that has changed with the new private pilot ACS, uh, Ian, is that if you hear the stall horn, that doesn't result in an immediate failure. If you hear the stall horn, the FA says you should uh, then take corrective procedures in order to uh, uh, eliminate the stall horn sound. Hey, that's good. I'm, I'm not complaining about that. Uh, my beef is with the fact that private and commercial ACS now will not require a, an applicant to demonstrate skill at flying on the uh, backside of the power curve. Hmm. And to me, that's a, that's a real shame. Yeah, I mean, what is slow flight if it's not flying on the backside of the power curve? Where else would you experience yeah. uh, flying on the backside of the power curve? Yeah. <clears throat> Guess where the FA says that you can gain the experience you need about the region of reversed command. Guess where they said you can get that? Uh, let me guess. Landings? Uh, stalls. Stalls, yeah. Yes, the FA says you can get that uh, during when you stall an airplane and in ground school. Well... Well, I can assure you that you're not going to get any reasonable experience, any uh, practical experience flying on the backside of the power curve as you're approaching a stall for the purpose of doing a stall. And uh, in ground school, you you can get all the academic knowledge you need, but uh, there's nothing more valuable than actually physically experiencing the backside of the power curve to make you a true believer in what that curve actually represents. So... Uh, the FAs, uh, again, I think their intent is to do good, and uh, their their motivation is noble, but uh, I think having good intentions is a highly overrated virtue. Uh, it's what you do that counts. 
So yeah. with all due respect to the FA, uh, I, I think, you know, they want to do a good job. They're just, I think, misguided in the sense that um, airline procedures work great for airline pilots. But general aviation flying, flying small airplanes, is an entirely different animal. And we know that 50% of our accidents in our uh, stick and rudder accidents. They are the inability to make an airplane do what the pilot wants it to do. In fact, um, if you look at some studies, overall studies, physical-based errors represent upwards of 79% of all aviation accidents in totem. So consequently, it's, uh, it's the inability to fly an airplane properly that gets pilots into trouble. And so that needs to be focused on, in my opinion. And what could the FAA have done uh, that they they didn't do, they could have taken the uh, the ACS and applied it first to flight instructors, which would have been a more appropriate, uh, I think, uh, approach to uh, changing the way flight instructors teach. And you know, I I, I don't have a, a dog in the fight when it comes to the commercial instrument and flight instructor and ATP ACS. You know, folks are smart enough to figure out whether they want to participate in that and do that or not. Private pilots don't have that option. And my real beef with the ACS for the private pilot was that it uh, it so complexifies obtaining a private pilot certificate that uh, I think what it's going to do is hinder the uh, participation in general aviation at the private pilot level. And, you know, we already know now that in the last 10 years, we've had a 20% reduction in flying time by pilots. We've had a, uh, I think it's uh, decreasing at about 1% per year in terms of the number of piston-powered aircraft uh, being flown. So the FAA's job is supposed to, uh, well, to uh, promote aviation, actually. In 1996, they changed that to encourage aviation. And uh, I would say they're really not doing the best job at it right now because uh, piston-powered airplanes, private pilot certificates, and private pilot flying are all on the decline. And while the uh, intent of the ACS is is good and noble, um, at the private pilot level, I think they made a very big mistake in making it much more complex for a person to obtain a private pilot license. Let me just give you an example. Um, a person who comes, you know, looks into flight training, picks up a copy of the ACS as compared to the, uh, uh, the PTS. And of course, the verbi- verbiage is, is, when you look at this thing, it's about twice as long uh, in terms of the original ACS for yeah. the uh, private pilot. Yeah, original PTS for the private pilot. And so uh, they look at that and they become immediately intimidated by the number of things they think they have to learn. The risk management requirements of the private pilot ACS are, uh, you know, what do you say about this? Um, The risk, to demonstrate your knowledge of risk management, there are, you know, anywhere from seven to eight to nine, sometimes 10 risk management items you've got to be able to respond to. You'll only be asked one for each task, but you have to have knowledge of all of them. And there's no direct source for that information. And let me, let me, let me clarify that. Hmm. Uh, risk management by the FAA's own definition is subjective. It has to be subjective. Your risk is not my risk. A student's risk is not your risk. It varies based on the the training and the experience of the individual. And when I sat with the FA psychologist 
at Sun and Fun uh, three years ago, the FA psychologist involved in helping create the risk management questions. I asked her, I, I said, are these sourced to a particular document? Because I expected the answer to be no, because they can't be sourced, uh, because you can't source a subjective value, subjective information um, in a document. And she said yes. And at that point, um, I realized how the sausage was made. I realized what these folks were doing here. They were increasing the subjectivity of the private pilot test probably lengthening the test and certainly intimidating people for what value, for what purpose. And the intent was on their part to make aviation safer. And get this, there's absolutely no proof, none whatsoever, that, uh, and, and, and even common sense doesn't suggest this, that asking people risk management questions that are highly subjective are going to have any uh, effect, overall effect on aviation safety. And when you compare that to the cost of asking those risk man management questions at the private pilot level, then you now have a loss for general aviation. And to sum this up, I'll just say this. The ACS, with the risk management additions that they had for the, at the private pilot level, would have been better served by providing that as a pamphlet free to all new private pilots that they can use to, to study with and guide their own study, but had the ACS been applied to the flight instructor at the very beginning of a student's training, the instructor would then uh, perhaps be cued in to better train his students on risk management awareness without having to increase the subjectivity of the private pilot test. I didn't even give you a chance to breathe and ask a question that I was, that I was blabbering on, but I just had to get that in there. Yeah, so. well, I know it's a, it's a subject you feel very strongly about, so um, it is... I I do. Yeah, and it is, it is pretty interesting. I mean, it's like, I definitely get the intention of risk management and uh, trying to focus on that, because I, I do think that you could make an argument for, you know, it's like you mentioned a lot of the, the accidents are skill-based and that's very true, but it's a lot of times it's, it's decisions that get people to those points where their skills can't, can't keep up with it. So I do think there's some value there, but I agree with you completely about the slow flight thing. And I, and it does seem like in a lot of cases it's, it's, it is pretty extensive. Yeah. And, and Hey, listen, I'm a reasonable guy and there's some good in everything. There's, there's no doubt what you said is, is true. You know, you're, you, um, uh, you, you, hooked on that, you focused on that as a flight instructor, because you say, hey, yeah, there's some, there's some value here. I guess my, my uh, overall point was that what value might be there um, would have been better served by, uh, could have been accomplished and better served by focusing on the flight instructor ACS first, which you know, we won't have for a couple more years. Yeah. But I am, you know, again, I'm a reasonable guy. Yes, there is some value there, although I do have to uh, question how much of an increase in subjectivity the private pilot uh, flight check now has increased. Because one of the ACS questions is, and this is an actual question for risk management, it says, um, identify ameliorate ameliorate the risks associated with the airplane stall warning system. Well, first of all, <clears throat> physical products don't have risk inherent uh, as a result of the physical product's existence. Risk is associated with how you use that physical product. So it's a bad question in the first place, but uh, that is, uh, uh, that's neither here nor there. 
the fact is that when you look in FA documents, it's very difficult to find any explanation or example of how the airplane stall warning system can produce or create a certain amount of risk based on how it's used. As I say, this, these questions are not sourced in the sense that uh, they don't reference the subjectivity or the subjective value as it applies to the individual. And that's what makes this whole thing, uh, I think, very, very confusing and will make it confusing for many, many people. Uh, but, you know, hey, I hope I'm wrong. I absolutely do hope I'm wrong, Ian. But uh, my gut says that I, I won't be. And as a result, this may further contribute to the decline of general aviation. Uh, because if you don't have, if you don't support the private pilot level, you've got nothing. Yeah. All the hierarchical um, components of, of, of aviation, commercial training, instrument training, ATP training, multi-engine, all that disappears if you don't have private pilots to begin with. Yeah. So yeah, you gotta you've got to support them. Yeah. Yeah, and so my whole objective is to do two things. One, give the average person an opportunity to earn a private pilot license at a reasonable cost, and that's important. And number two, to do it without having to jump through too many government hoops. Mm. And, uh, and and let me say one more thing about this, too. If the um, argument on the ACS with the ACS committee is, well, if we don't talk about risk management, they won't learn it. Well, for, you know, that's like believing that if you put hand lotion in your airplane's fuel tank, you'll make your landings smoother, softer, and younger looking. That, that's just, that is a big misconception. I'm going to try not, that, actually. I think that's yeah, a good I know idea. You've already tried. Yeah. yeah, I've already tried. Yeah. Works well. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah, as, as long as you're flying a glider, yeah. it works very, very well. But the, um, the the point there is, people say, well, how people how are people going to learn risk management? Well, if you have a good instructor, um, then you learn risk management in several ways. Number one, um, Richard Bem, Stanford University, said that our basic beliefs and values, our deepest value systems, occur based on uh, from whom we role model. In other words, those are our role models provide our deepest um, consistent values that we have consistently through life. Your flight instructor is the person uh, that is your role model. And therefore, with a good flight instructor, you have good values taught. Now, if you have a bad flight instructor, then you're not going to get that stuff, which is one of the reasons why I, wanted, I suggested working on the, the flight instructor ACS first, hmm. but uh, that wasn't to be. So the second thing is, how do you teach risk management, initial risk management about landing an airplane? First of all, you cannot teach people risk management uh, about something that they haven't actually done, perceived, or thought about. So consequently, um, it's, in other words, risk management in any meaningful way. The best way to learn risk management for initially for learning uh, as a private pilot certificate on a private pilot applicant is to go out and land in a crosswind, as an example. Yeah. And then yeah. you'll learn risk management in terms of handling crosswinds. Without that experience, then uh, all the academic pedagogical risk management knowledge means nothing. You've got to have practical experience. So you don't teach somebody calculus before you uh, teach them algebra, and you don't teach them algebra before you teach them adds, takeaways, times, and goes into's. Hmm. At the private pilot level, you teach the basics, you focus on the basics, and at, a, at the end of a private pilot um, curriculum, as has happened for a hundred and what, 10 years now uh, or so, at the end of that private pilot curriculum, private pilots, if they're taught well by their flight instructor, 
without any direct mention of risk management, have the basic risk management skills they need to continue to learn more about risk management. Because a private pilot license is a license to learn. It's not a license that says you have learned everything, as the FA would apparently like it to be. So I apologize once again. I am talking so much and I'm feeling so bad. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Well, so I want to give you a chance, though, before we go to, um, you know, you mentioned that that you are, uh, you think supporting the private level is really critical. Um, and so a lot of a lot of your stuff is actually geared towards that. So tell me what you're working on and uh, and what's what's coming down the pipe and, and where people can find you. Sure. And uh, before I do that, let me just mention this, and uh, and don't you dare cut this out. Um, this it, One of the things that's so unique about what you do in Flight Training Magazine is you've made the magazine a, a wonderful magazine. And anybody that's not getting that magazine uh, is being deprived of a great source of practical, useful knowledge. I'm talking about flight instructors, private commercial instrument students. They should get that magazine. So I get a subscription. It's extremely important in my opinion. Your leadership has also been uh, exemplary in that area too, Ian. I'm not just kissing up because you know I always do my kissing up right at the beginning of any podcast. So uh, I, I really, I really mean that you do. Uh, you do great work, and you, you have uh, in all my years of associating with you, you you're a uh, intellectually honest person and uh, uh, a very clear and deep thinker about these issues. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I agreed to do this uh, podcast. Now on to answering the question. Thanks. And the question is, um, I have uh, the products that uh, I've designed. I've designed to be educational in terms of my books and e-learning courses, audio courses, and uh, and video courses, and also be educational through um, playfulness, a, a technique that people call edutainment. In other words, I have fun with all my products. You can take my private pilot handbook. It's 626 pages. You can read that and uh, learn all the basic knowledge you need to become the academic knowledge you need to become a, a private pilot and pass the knowledge exam. And guess what? You'll have fun doing it. Hmm. And uh, we even have... You know, people just don't read as much as they used to. But we even have 12-year-old children reading the book and enjoying it because it keeps their attention. Well, one of the reasons I moved into the uh, e-learning course program, uh, which uh, I now have, I think, seven e-learning courses and and developing more uh, uh, each month, the uh, reason is people like interactivity in their education. They like pictures. They like to look at things. They like to have things talk to them. Mm -hmm. So. That's what I provide. And then I have audiobooks, uh, too, that are uh, available for people that want to learn while they drive. In other words, have a private pilot audiobook, an instrument audiobook, and a uh, how to fly an airplane audiobook. And mm-hmm. these are essentially uh, almost unabridged uh, versions of my private pilot, how to fly airplane handbook, and instrument handbook. I say almost unabridged. Certain things I, I don't put in there, like the table of contents. And things like that, but uh, certain things uh, I have to leave out by virtue of the relevance, but not much, only about three, four percent. So, and then the last course I developed is the e learning course on handling in flood emergencies, and it's six hours. And it's a, uh, it's basically the version of the course I, I took around the country in the early 1990s. I went all over the United States and uh, Europe, as a matter of fact, teaching that course. And it's a very popular course, and uh, it gives people a great deal of confidence in and uh, knowing that hey, if this happens in an airplane, then I've got to do this. For example, extreme vibration in an airplane. Anytime you experience extreme vibration, not a little, I'm talking about 
vibration that just knocks your wheel pants off or knocks the airplane's wheel pants off. There's one thing you have to do, and you have to do it instantaneously. You have to do it as quickly as you can, and that's pull the throttle back and apply a little uh, aft pressure on the elevator because there's only there are only three things that can cause that kind of vibration. A propeller blade fracture, uh, catastrophic engine failure, or flutter, divergent flutter. And those three things are all solved initially by pulling that throttle back as quick as you can. So those are the, I, I offer a lot of very handy, useful techniques and cover um, all the major emergencies and the lesser emergencies that a pilot could experience. And the intent is not to scare people. The intent is to uh, equip them with the knowledge to fly confidently. Hmm. And it's rare that any emergency is ever going to happen in an airplane. So, but when it does, it's nice to know what to do. That's great. That's great. All right, Rod. Well... Thanks again for spending the time, and uh, we'll we'll see you at the air shows, I guess. I look forward to it, Ian. And uh, again, it's a real pleasure uh, talking with you. Th- thanks so much for uh, taking the time to do the uh, podcast with me. And uh, and I, I'm just going to apologize right now for uh, talking so much. It's as if I, I I was vaccinated with a phonograph needle. I normally, believe it or not, I normally don't talk that much. You just get me so excited about these topics that I couldn't resist. Thanks very much for that opportunity. See you, Ron. Thanks. All right, David. So you um, you're going to work on your commercial, right? Absolutely, I have been, and I'm going to continue. Yes. So you know, now you don't have to do a full stall anymore. Oh, that's so wuss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want to know how to do that. I yeah. want to get right up to the edge and go over. Yeah. How else will you know I, if you're on the precipice? I agree. I agree. All right. Well, you keep doing those full stalls, right. and uh, <laughs> you'll make Rod a happy guy. I hope so. He's a funny guy, anyway. We're glad glad we had him. Yeah. All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Look, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. Email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. Don't forget, we're now on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Oh.